Okay, hi and welcome to episode 17 of the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. Today um, I have what will possibly be the most controversial topic uh, I think we could ever get into, which will be on the subject of carbohydrates. And I can think of nobody better to get into this topic with me from a very evidence-based perspective, totally unbiased, uh, I mean, would be uh, Dr. James Morton. Um, Dr. James Morton, hi, how you doing? Hello, Laurie, how you doing? I'm good, mate, I'm good. That'll be the last time we call you doctor, so don't worry. I know I know how much you guys hate being called doctor. It's funny, you spent all this time studying to get your PhD, and then uh, you just you just like to be called your first name, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, well, when you're brought up in Belfast, you're taught never to think you're better than what you are. Oh, that's, yes, yes, a lesson worth learning. So, um, James, just uh, I, I know a lot of people, a lot of our listeners will know who you are or will be aware of you, but just to sort of give a bit of background, you're um, a, uh, a lecturer and a researcher at Liverpool John Moores. Um, I, I know you've published a great deal um, in, uh, in your relatively young years, uh, which is very, very commendable for, for, for what you've done. Uh, I know you've co-authored um, a very important textbook on exercise metabolism, which I use in, uh, with my students, of course, on the ISSN diploma, and uh, um, I know is a highly acclaimed textbook. And I know you are also the uh, performance nutritionist to Liverpool Football Club, and there's all kinds of other accolades. I've certainly heard you speak many times at conferences, of course, on our program, and and so on. So, I know you know your stuff, and that's exactly why I wanted you to to get onto this this episode about carbohydrates. So, let's just jump straight into this. I know, as you know, this is a sort of a interesting topic because there's a lot of people that are very opinionated about this stuff. They're very it's a very polarized debate. It's it's one of those areas that people can get really quite emotional over uh, to the point of fisticuffs. Um, I you know there's very few other topics in in health or sports nutrition, sports science, but health generally that can get uh, people riled up as as much as uh, uh, as some people do over politics, like like they do with carbohydrates. So I mean, why why don't you just I mean, give us a quick overview from your perspective as to you know what? You know what? What we're talking about here? Why are people getting in a tears over carbohydrates? Okay, so I'm glad you've given me the most controversial topic. As you, <laughs> well, you're the man. I'll try my best. Yeah. So I guess it, in this day and age, people are sort of in uproar about carbohydrates in terms of whether they promote body fat gains. Whereas the traditional nutritional advice for athletes was always to consume a high carbohydrate diet. And now, of course, the general population also consume a high-carbohydrate diet. And from that perspective, the debate is, is it high-carbohydrate that makes you fat or is it high-fat intake that makes you fat? And that's probably the most controversial area, not just in sport nutrition, but in nutrition in general at the minute. And then from a sports nutrition perspective, you've got various people saying, that actually, you don't need carbohydrates to perform well. You can adapt to a high-fat diet. And that might be a superior way to train and to perform during competitions. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting how so many people seem to have got the wrong end of the stick. And I, I think that if there's some message that we've tried to get through on this on this podcast series is, is my favorite word, which is context. Uh, and that is just 
just about the overall sort of defining feature of how I think people should be looking at these things. It's not a question of it's good or bad. It's a question of whether there's a good time or a bad time. So, uh, I mean, let's, you know, let's, let's get into this. I know that, you know, most of the listeners probably do have actually some perspective on, on where they are with this, you know, whether they feel that carbohydrates are the root to evil, carbohydrates are the cause of obesity and so on, like you've mentioned. But I mean, why, why do you think that the sort of dogmatism of it is black and white, good or bad? Why, I mean, why do you think that alone is a problem? Well, I mean, the black and white approach is a problem because, like you say, there's times when you need carbohydrate and there's times when you don't need carbohydrate. And when you then try and pitch something as complex as that, as a black and white sort of problem, people then perceive that it is just a, a situation of yes or no. And it's really not that simple. And yet there's a whole host of factors you need to consider, predominantly training load. What's your training load like? What's the physical demands of your competition like? And then you certainly can periodize your carbohydrate in and around those sessions. Yes. And of course, there's other factors too, isn't there? Like, uh, uh, I mean, I, another thing I mention a lot on this podcast is this business of variability between individuals. And um, and even, even with the same individual, those variations can occur throughout the day at different times, different days of the week. Uh, all kinds of factors can influence it. But let's not, let's not make this overly complex because it's already a, a complex topic um, but I think before we really tackle the juicy side of this um, which is what I'm really excited to get into let, let's just quickly sort of set some foundations here I mean why why do we actually need to eat carbohydrates and that I, I guess we should we should probably restrict that more to a, a performance and body composition perspective as opposed to all the health parameters because there are things that we could get into like carbohydrates and fibers you know do play a role with digestive health and you know bacterial levels in the gut may be dependent on certain amounts of carbohydrates and so on i i don't think we've got enough time to get into all of that but just generally from a performance and body composition focus uh, i mean why why do we need carbs Okay, so I mean, this is probably something that the listeners are all too familiar with. It's one of the first lessons we're ever taught on our undergraduate degrees. And that, of, of course, is carbohydrate improves performance. And those studies all relate back to even from the 1900s right up till the first biopsy studies in the 1960s, where it was consistently shown that a high carbohydrate diet will increase muscle glycogen storage. And also, if you've also got high liver glycogen, then the theory goes that you will be able to improve exercise capacity. And that's definitely been shown in numerous types of sport and activities. Um, and then from that perspective, the typical advice to athletes is you need to have a high carbohydrate diet, at least in the days prior to competition, in order to maximize your performance. And then of course, when you come back to the effects of exercise intensity, when you start exercising above intensities, let's say 70% VO2 max, then carbohydrates predominate. And indeed, if you, if you look at some of the elite marathon runners, these guys are running at 20, 21 kilometers per hour. They're running at almost 85, 90% of VO2 max for two hours. And they're just they're being fueled by carbohydrates. There's no way that lipid metabolism can fuel that, that rate of ATP production. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I think it's pretty clear that carbohydrates are certainly important for performance. But of course, there's different sort of ideas behind what performance is and and that will vary from person to person whether you're a a keep fit person a um you know uh, someone who's just exercising to uh, to be healthy all the way up to an olympic athlete but of course when people look at research um to try and justify their arguments or their perspectives you know they they lose sight don't they about what that research was about if we're talking about carbohydrates is essential for performance at an elite athlete level that doesn't necessarily mean we're having the same viewpoint or even the context is is different with regards to someone who does 90 minutes of exercise a week yeah. um i mean that's, that that's important isn't it yeah that, i mean that's the i guess that's the the be all and the end all of today's podcast actually is the Whereas the elite athletes might benefit from high carbohydrate diets, the reality is the general population who are doing, as you say, perhaps 90 minutes of exercise per week, then definitely don't need high carbohydrate intake. And I'm sure we've all seen it. You've seen people going to the gym to lose weight, running on a treadmill, drinking a bottle of Lucasade Sport. And of course, they're just completely blunting the whole thing they're trying to achieve in the first place in terms of, of losing body fat levels. Yeah, it, it's 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 funny, isn't it, when you see uh, people in the gym who are sitting there with their you know famous branded sports drinks, and of course they're there with the correct assumption that consuming the fuel um, will give them more energy, so they might have a better workout. But of course, what they're not thinking about is what they're trying to achieve as a result of of that workout, and of course the uh, the negatives may out outweigh. Um, the benefits, um, which is something I want to I want to get back to. So let let's let's just take advantage of of your knowledge here, particularly in um, biochemistry and uh, you know intracellular biochemistry and metabolism and so on. So what you know because thus far what we have is an argument for how wonderful carbohydrates are, um, and there's no doubt that they will um, support performance. But obviously there's an argument that's starting to emerge, which of course is, yeah, that, that's a perfectly valid argument for carbohydrates, but we don't have enough evidence to provide a counter argument. And, and just because there's not enough, you know, just because there's all this evidence for carbs and there isn't sufficient evidence to support, you know, certain other approaches, which we'll get into in a minute, um, that doesn't mean that, that the, the, the evidence is overwhelmingly uh, proving that carbohydrates is the only way to uh, achieve these things, it, it, it has to be borne in mind that there's a lack of evidence elsewhere just because the research hasn't yet been done. I know it's starting to happen now, but with what you know now, it's being that you, you know you spend a lot of your time in the lab looking at this stuff, what is the current sort of science starting to say about this? Okay, so I, I guess one of the biggest uh, things to emerge in the literature in recent years is this, the concept of training low and competing high. Mm. And what that means is that sometimes it might be beneficial to deliberately commence training sessions with low carbohydrate, either achieved by an overnight fast or achieved by training twice per day where you don't feed carbohydrate in between sessions. That way the second session is commenced with low muscle glycogen. Or alternatively, sometimes it might be good to deliberately restrict carbohydrate in the post-exercise period 
And all of the rationale behind these three different approaches is that some of the cell signaling pathways that regulate how muscles adapt to endurance training, in other words, mitochondrial biogenesis, they all seem to be more switched on and more activated when you restrict carbohydrate. On the flip side, when you complete the same exercise stimulus, identical intensities, identical durations, but you ensure carbohydrate is high, like what you would do for performance, then what seems to happen is that you seem to blunt training adaptation. And it's almost like the training load just hasn't had the desired effect. And then, of course, because of what we know about performance, then what we're sort of advising people is that when it comes to race day or match day, whatever it might be, then you then load up on carbohydrates and you also consume them during that particular period of competition. That way you're, you're hopefully getting the best of the restriction during your training sessions, but you're also getting the best of the for performance. Yeah, no, that's, that's good and that's well put. I think what's starting to emerge then as far as what I'm seeing from this is there's a couple of different angles. There's looking at the role of carbohydrates from its role as a fuel. Yeah. There's looking at carbohydrates from the perspective of how it influences signaling. Yeah, and that's 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 a great point that you've made. Is we shouldn't just look at it as a simple lump of sugar anymore. It's much more than a fuel source. It's a, almost a training regulator, you could call it. And that's fascinating, isn't it? Because that changes our view of what is traditionally. I mean, nutrition over the years, and you know, if you. I think if you, I mean, certainly when I did the bulk of my education, which is a long time ago now, um, my formal education, the, you know, carbohydrates, fats, proteins, these were just calories, they were just fuel. But we're now starting to learn that there's so much more to that in terms of, you know, like your molecular uh, signaling, there's maybe ways that these things can influence the way genes express themselves. Um, so therefore, our, our use of these foods is is no longer just from a fueling perspective which i think is where people get a bit lost don't they because they're only thinking of this oh it's a calorie uh it's you you know it's useful calories or it's useless calories it's going to affect energy balance that affects um you know the calories in calories out debate and that's pretty much the only way they're looking at this but of course it, it's not just that it's a fuel or it's about signaling um there's also the context of this it's it's is it, you know, when, when do you use it as a fuel and when shouldn't you use it as a fuel? When do you need it for signaling and when is it not necessary for signaling? And in what format can it go in for signaling? Do you have to ingest it or do you just need to rinse it in the mouth, which we'll get into in a minute? So there's actually a great deal of complexity to this, which, which I suspect you're going to tell us we've barely even scratched the surface about what we're learning here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this we're almost in a new year of of sport nutrition with the with the advent of molecular biology into sports science and especially sport nutrition. We now know that the energy intake and what time of day that we eat it in relation to our sessions can completely change what we get out of that training session. So, as you say, it's controlling and regulating gene expression, and that this will probably be one of the most exciting things in sport nutrition in the next 10 or 20 years yeah i believe so i mean i you know i have a strength and conditioning background originally and those of us that are in strength and conditioning are well versed in periodization of, of training 
Um, but obviously, what's emerging now is this concept of periodization of nutrition. Um, you know, sort of nutrient timing. Um, in fact, I, I've heard in one of your lectures, you, you, you came up with an excellent way of simplifying this. It was something along the lines of timing and type, etc. Do, do you want to just quickly tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, all that is is just a pretty simple model that I sometimes use with athletes to try and get across the most important things. And that's just uh, refer to the three T's of nutrition. The first one being timing, the second one being type, and the third one being total. And almost if you speak to an athlete to make sure they understand at what time they consume the right food, is it the right type? And last but not least, have I got the right total? In other words, the right quantity. And actually, when you break it down to something as simple as that, real, nutrition really is quite basic in the context of what we do every day. Yeah, it's very important you say that because, <clears throat> I, I mean, I'm a big believer in the applied side of things, as you know, and, and, it, and the, to be pragmatic about this is important. I mean, there's no end to the amount of graduates who've just gotten their degrees or master's degrees, you know, in sports science, biochemistry, whatever, and they, you know, they're highly enthusiastic about the rocket science. And you, you find yourself talking to athletes um, about things like mitochondrial biogenesis, ATP recycling, and so on. <laughs> and of course, they haven't got a clue what you're yeah. talking about. And we talked about this, uh, in fact, it was with, uh, I think it was with Graham Close, your colleague, uh, who, um, who was on this podcast, uh, one of the last ones, about the importance of keeping this stuff simple. Um, and that, you know, uh, that is a really, a really big issue is our role as nutritionists or for those of you that are scientists feeding information to the practitioners that deal with people at the applied, you know, the client facing end is about trying to make people's life easier. How do you simplify things? And of course, we're, we're making things very complex. But of course, we do need to understand, you know, the reasons why we are or are not going to recommend increasing or decreasing carbohydrates and and that's of course the reason for needing the science and um, I think one lesson I've learned from you and from Graham again having sat through a lot of your lectures is just how important it is to understand the biochemistry behind this stuff um, because it's only through an understanding of biochemistry you, you truly understand why you're making these these recommendations yeah um, I mean, that's, that's the way that we try and teach all of our students at, at John Moore's is to appreciate the biochemistry first. And then when, you've, when you're actually designing meal plans and you're putting food on a plate and athletes are eating it before or after the session, then they'll know how the food's going to be stored. They'll know how it's going to be metabolized. And most importantly, they'll know how that's then going to affect the output of that particular session. And really, once you go back to the the reactions that regulate all of these things, we believe that it is pretty simple, really. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's go back to some simple stuff then. So you mentioned before about training low, training high. Let's just just quickly get into that because I know you you know there there are ideas out there um, about training low, training high, sleeping low, sleeping high. Can can we just? I mean, you know, this would be beyond the capabilities. Uh, and time available to do any of this justice, but can you just give us a quick overlook, uh, overview of why we even want to start thinking about approaching, um, you know, the periodization or the timing of these things from the perspective of training low, 
training high, sleeping low and sleeping high if, 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 <laughs> if I haven't given you too much to bite off there. Yeah, no, that's fine. So, as I said before, there's, there's now numerous independent laboratories, ourselves included, the Australians, people in, in Belgium and Denmark, and all of us are showing the same thing, and that is that when you restrict carbohydrate, either before, during, or after your session, in the context of an endurance-type athlete, what you typically find is greater mitochondrial adaptations. In other words, the muscle becomes more oxidative, which of course is what you're trying to achieve when you undertake an endurance-type session anyway. Now the bigger question is, what's the dominant time period to restrict? Should you restrict before? Should you restrict during? Or should you restrict afterwards? And my, my gut instinct is that to maximize the response, you've probably got to do all three. And then this is where we came up with this concept of sleep low, train low. So there's some studies that have shown that actually when you restrict carbohydrate in the post-exercise period, so let's say you do a hard bout of exercise, then the traditional advice is you have to recover with high carbohydrate. Actually, when you deliberately recover with low carbohydrate, you, need, you increase all of the gene expression responses. Now, typically that means then that if you do a morning training session, that you consume low carbohydrate during the rest of the day. And of course, that's very hard for, for people to maintain. However, if you do your training session in the evening time, and you've depleted your carbohydrate stores, and then you go to sleep overnight, which is a natural time to fast anyway. Now you're in a situation where you're, you're restricting energy intake and the muscle is now upregulating all of these gene expression responses. And if you wake up the next morning, you do another exercise session, this time low intensity, because you, you have limited carbohydrate available, so you can't perform high intensity workloads. Now all of a sudden you're training low as well. So you've, you've slept low and you've trained low and you might now be going for a period of 14, 15 hours where the muscle is just upregulating all of these proteins that regulate training adaptation. And we're currently doing those studies at the minute to see how that will actually affect training adaptation long term. But we're quite confident that at least we're going to get some form of, of benefit from that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so... As you're saying that, I'm thinking, as always, sort of a, a sort of a context point of view. There are going to be, there are going to be cases for for all these kinds of scenarios. So, of course, one needs to think about. Well, hang on, what am I actually trying to do here? Um, what is the actual point of this strategy? You know, what what's the short term, medium, and long term goal? Um, you know, there are things you're trying to achieve through your training during the week but at the end of the week there may be a competition or um, to put it in context of, of non-professional athletes it may be that you know in your working week you you might get to work out during your lunch break and that's maybe more about um, body composition and keeping fit but at the weekends that's when you go out and do your massive bike ride or your massive you know whatever there are different things that we're trying to do even within a sort of a, a micro cycle of a, a, a week um, so there's going to be strategies where all of these things can have a role to play. And of course, one needs to start to think about how and when to use these. And of course, probably the biggest one that is going to confront most people, the listeners, I guess, is how do I use this from the perspective of improving my body composition? 
Um, so a question here then is, is, is how can you train low as part of a, a sort of a hypocaloric or low calorie sort of weight loss, fat loss strategy whilst um, not necessarily losing lean mass? Yeah. So it, if someone is really serious about manipulating body composition, then training low, in my experience, and based on the biochemistry, is definitely the way to go. So like I said before, there's various ways to do it. You can train fasted, but not necessarily fasted. You can put in a little bit of protein before that morning session. The protein isn't going to stop any fat burning, and what it will reduce is protein breakdown. So in other words, you're trying to train to reduce body fat but maintain lean. That's probably when you should do your cardiovascular work. Then in the afternoon period, you would do your resistance training. You would feed some protein after that session, obviously. Or alternatively, on certain days of the week, you might want to do the sleep low, train low approach, where you do a high-intensity cardio session in the evening time, put some protein back in before you sleep, have some protein the next morning for your breakfast, and then do that morning cardiovascular session again. And again, in, in my experience of working with a lot of weight-restricted athletes, especially professional boxers, it's amazing how much body fat you can actually lose and maintain lean when you periodize your carbohydrate intake right and you make sure that you're consuming enough protein and you make sure you're still performing all of your regular resistance training sessions. And actually the general population for wanting to lose body fat and maintain lean muscle is probably a, a reduced carbohydrate, high protein diet that's the most sensible way to go. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what about though the other side of this, of course, where you know we're talking about biochemistry and physiology here, but there's a psychology behind this and there's an emotional sort of attachment and relationship to this. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on that um, since you work with so many athletes, of course? I mean, I'm, I mean, my approach to this is very much a case of not necessarily, you know, one week you're eating carbs and then immediately you just suddenly go, you know, cold turkey. There might be sort of a, a stage of change that you might want to assess depending on your own personality or type. And of course, depending on how quickly one needs to achieve this. But um, I mean, is there a, 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 a timing involved here that, that for, you know, for adaptation? Is it something that happens overnight? Does it take days? Does it take weeks? What, what, I mean, you know, what, what sort of things are we going to be looking at that might affect your subjective experience of this, like, you know, like cravings and, and so on? Yeah, and again, it's, it's a good question, Lauren, and it, it really depends on the athlete themselves, how much they're restricting carbohydrate by in terms of the absolute magnitude, and also how often we're doing it. I mean, we're getting into the grey area here of is it a low carbohydrate diet? Or is it just restricting carbohydrate in and around your sessions? Because people mistake them as the same thing, but they're completely different things. So when you're training low to try and maximize adaptation to that session, you might train low in and around that particular session, but you can still put carbohydrate in at other points in the day and you'll still get the beneficial aerobic adaptations. Where in contrast, if you're on a low carbohydrate diet, then you're training low effectively all of the time. And it's getting the trade-off between those two things. And it really depends what people are, are trying to get out of their training and their, 
the body composition program, I guess. Yeah, it's a, it's a typical example of how everyone just oversimplifies this when they, they get into this argument. Because firstly, from a quanti quantification point of view, what even is low or high carb? Because if, you know, we've had these conversations with others, you know, um, uh, uh, Professor uh, Stu Phillips, Kevin Tipton, uh, and also uh, uh, Jose Antonio, um, in separate podcasts, and Alan Aragon, actually, uh, and Brad Schoenfeld, all sort of similar topics. You know, one thing that comes out from this, of course, is, I mean, our idea of high and low protein is probably completely different from someone else's. When I say um, moderate protein, that's someone, I, someone else's idea of high protein. So can, can we just quickly, you know, from a, a slightly more sort of scientific perspective, what is low carb or high carb? Yeah. So, again, if we're talking about very low carbohydrate diets, which is referred, typically referred to as ketogenic diets, then you're talking about less than 50 grams of carbohydrate per day. Now, that's not what I'm certainly advocating to my athletes because most of the guys that I work with are involved in high-intensity sports. So a low-carbohydrate diet, in my approach to practice, is probably somewhere in the region of 100 to 250 per day. And what I've found is that people can still maintain training intensities when they're on that amount of carbohydrate. Um, and then I guess moderate intake is probably somewhere from 200 to 400. And then it's when you get above 400 and 500 that you're typically going into high carbohydrate diets. And I think, I think most listeners would agree if they read the literature correctly that those boundaries probably constitute a very low diet, a low diet, a moderate, and a high. Yeah, so many, so many people that I've spoken to, my, my own sort of athletes and, and personal clients, they've obviously heard about this, you know, low carb and, and whatnot. And the biggest problem I see from them is they completely misunderstand what we mean by low carb, as you've just described. To them, they're like, low carb means no carb, and they go out of their way to eat no carbs at all uh, and of course there are you know that's a difficult thing to do and we, we, we can in a second I'd like to just quickly delve into the keto adaptation because that is obviously one of the the new that that's one of the new movements right now as people are really going on about keto and I think we should discuss that briefly but you know you've already made it clear low carb does not mean keto in fact um, in, you know, going low carb can still be quite a bit of carbohydrates. Really, what we're suggesting here is um, there's only so many things the body can do with carbohydrates. So, if you're going to consume more carbohydrates than you actually need, that surplus carbohydrates is kind of difficult for the, for the body to partition that in any other way than storage, right? Yeah. Um, whereas undereating the carbohydrates depending on how significantly you undereat them it may bring about metabolic adaptations where the body can adapt to less carbohydrate which those adaptations may actually be beneficial depending on what we're trying to do as in lose body fat or improved metabolic efficiency that sort of thing or you can simply undereat carbohydrates to such an extreme level that a number of things are going to happen either you're just undereating calories generally and therefore energy balance is completely out the window and of course that's a problem or you're going to have symptoms and of course that's one of the issues with going 
super low carb or keto is it's not necessarily that it does or doesn't work. Let's say it does work because we know that it, it can work as long as it's done properly. The problem is it's damn difficult to do because some of those symptoms, particularly in certain people or people who haven't done it properly or haven't given themselves enough time to adapt, those symptoms can be pretty tough to deal with. And of course, it makes it hard to do. So if one wants to be pragmatic about this, um, you know, how, whatever your approach is for this sort of thing, it needs to be with the understanding that you can do it long term. If you can't do this stuff short term, um, you shouldn't expect any long term benefits from it because you won't be able to keep that up. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, you're right. Um, I think it all comes back to when people say, how much carbohydrate should I take? It all comes back to, can you maintain your training intensities and your training goals with X amounts? If you can't, then you need to up them. The other thing is, is people always say, how do I know if I'm eating too much carbohydrate? And probably the easy answer is, are you overweight? Mm. Because you're doing all this amount of training every day, and yet you're still overweight. So maybe you are consuming too much carbohydrate. And again, I don't want to make it sound like too simple, but on face value, sometimes it is that simple. If your training intensity is suffering, then clearly you need more. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we've covered a little bit of these topics in some other ones like um, on metabolic efficiency uh, and metabolic flexibility podcasts. Uh, and, you know, I'm fortunate that I get to do metabolic testing um, all day long, every day in my clinic. And when we do see this, you see people um, eating more carbohydrates than they need. And, and there are adaptations to that, which um, means that, amongst other things, body composition suffers. And, of course, um, being overweight has a hugely negative functional impact. I mean, carrying around dead weight is, you know, we don't like it from a health perspective. We don't like it from a performance perspective. And we certainly don't like it from an aesthetic perspective. But I think we've made it clear that, you know, the, 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 it's not a, you know we're not arguing whether or not carbs are good or bad, it's it's context. Um, and um, we, we, we just need to find that sweet point, which is right for you, your training, your goals, your individual needs, and so on. But we, we did just touch upon the whole keto thing. So I'm pretty sure that's another area that people misunderstand. So can you explain, I mean, what, I mean, it sounds, it, it's a, it's a cool sounding name, keto. Um, but let, let's just describe that for the listeners a bit. Okay, so ketogenic diets is based on the premise that when you consume less than a, roughly around 50 grams carbohydrates per day, that you then start um, producing excess fatty acids and they get converted to substances called ketones in the liver. And now what you've done is you've produced an alternative fuel because ketones can fuel the brain in the absence of glucose, but they can also fuel contraction during, I guess, moderate intensity exercise, if you like. So in that particular aspect, a lot of researchers, and as you know, Jeff Follett and Tim Noakes and all sorts are, are suggesting that keto adaptation is great for weight loss, and I would definitely agree with that, that it's great for um, moderate intensity, prolonged performance, and I think I would agree with that as well. So if you're, if you're definitely performing, if you're an ultra runner, and your body can run on fat and ketones, then it's probably a good thing. 
The other side of the coin is if you're an athlete that is really involved in high intensity efforts and repeated sprints, or you're running quick like a marathon runner, or you're climbing up a hill like a cyclist in the stage of the Grand Tour, when you need to generate power output quickly, if you've been on a high fat diet or a ketogenic diet, unfortunately a lot of those enzymes that regulate carbohydrate oxidation are now switched off and you the downside is you can't generate power output quickly and therefore performance could suffer in those high intensity sports. So there's also some health implications though aren't there where uh, and we can just briefly sidestep from performance 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 because I you know one of the things that I have to remind my students of all the time is before we even get into this idea of, of sports nutritional performance nutrition we need to we need to get our human beings our athletes who are all human beings healthy um, and a healthy athlete is someone who's going to adapt better to training they're going to you know uh, sustain heavier training loads they're uh, less likely to get uh, ill or injured or whatever so there are some health sort of components but outside of the performance area there are uh, you know, metabolic diseases or obesity and so on, there are some potential benefits to keto adaptation. Even from a military perspective, I attended a lecture in the States on that subject where they're even looking at keto adaptation as a way of improving, um, you know, oxygen utilization, you know, the efficiency of oxygen usage and and uh, for deep sea diving or a tactical deployment underwater, that sort of thing, there are benefits potentially to keto and some definitely some medical conditions seem to respond well to to keto do you uh, have you got any thoughts on that yeah again uh, i mean i can't i don't think we can say oh keto adaptation is going to cure everything but i think you're right in that a lot of uh diseases especially the lifestyle diseases certain periods of keto adaptation could change someone's physiology and make them more healthy but again, you don't need to probably go on a ketogenic diet. You could just go on a carbohydrate-restricted diet and still reverse a lot of those things. So I'm talking, like you said, about obesity, type 2 diabetes and so forth. I mean, a ketogenic diet is at the extreme end of the spectrum. You could probably achieve a lot of those health benefits on, let's call it a sensible carbohydrate diet. In other words, where you're just eating less carbohydrate in total, but also less sugar and less processed foods, and you're just consuming more natural foods. Yeah. If, people, if people did that in the first place, then we probably wouldn't be in the health crisis that we're in. No, no I'm inclined to agree. I mean, all of these things are just tools in the toolbox, and I think there are many scenarios where, as you've described, where you know they, they all have a place you know, in what we're trying to do, whether it's performance, whether it's body composition. And, you know, uh, there's 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 going to be people that like and dislike these things. There's, you know, individual uh, preferences, genetics. People will respond differently. Not everyone does well on these approaches. And for every person that does well on one method, another person will do well on another. And, of course, you need, you know, trial, experimentation. There's all kinds of scenarios. There is no right or wrong way there's just what's right or wrong for that person um and i think it's about time we just stop being so dogmatic about this stuff and you know getting into fisticuffs over which is the right method because they're all right and they're all wrong it's just context 
Um, so let, let, let's uh, just go back to some stuff that we delved into a bit earlier because I think it's particularly interesting that we're looking at this from a sort of a fueling perspective and then from a signaling perspective. So we've discussed, you know, we, we know that carbohydrates uh, is particularly important for high intensity power production. There's just no arguments there. You need some of it. We know that for certain endurance perspectives, uh, improving the ability to um, to burn or oxidize fats is great. And we know, um, particularly in a podcast I did before on metabolic efficiency, we know that there's even a duality there where um, if we improve the body's ability to use fats, we can be in a scenario where we can conserve um, uh, glycogen. Um, and um, that can have a role to play where you get the best of both worlds. Um, you know, even in a really lean person, I believe there's still enough uh, fuel from, from body fat stores to last a good five or so back-to-back -back marathons, um, which is certainly not the same to be said for carbohydrates, is it? Yeah, no, and again, that's the whole rationale for high-fat diets and ketogenic diets is adapting your physiology to be able to tap into that huge supply of fat, as you said. Um, but of course, the best way to tap into that fat is to become more trained in the first place because the, the, one of the, the dominant factors of endurance training is you increase the capacity to burn fat. And again, one of the dominant factors of deliberately training low is that you increase the capacity to burn fat as well. But hopefully what I'm trying to get across is that if you do this too much, it's all very well, you increase the capacity to burn fat, but you also downregulate the capacity to burn carbohydrate. And it's the carbohydrate that's going to make you go quick and it's going to make you win the race. What you need, and you've touched on it before when you said metabolic flexibility, is a muscle cell that knows how to burn fat and also knows how to burn carbohydrate. And if you've got a muscle like that that is very efficient at using both fuel sources and you put in the correct mileage or whatever your, your sport requires, then you've got a very good chance of doing well and, and achieving your desired performance. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's it's really fascinating to me, uh, and I know to most most of the listeners, where we're so conditioned to think about the role of external factors as as a, as a training stimuli. Like uh, uh, the training itself is really what most people traditionally and historically have been focused on. What they don't think about is how the foods that you eat, the types of foods, the, the when and the timing and all the stuff that you've discussed is another factor that influences adaptations. And there's a, um, I'm going to uh, just quickly uh, read a quote from, from you, James, uh, from a lecture uh, I attended, which um, you state, um, although the nature of the training stimulus, i.e. intensity and duration, is important in determining how we respond to exercise training, the nutritional status of the muscle before, during, and after exercise can be the dominant factor enhancing or blunting training adaptations and competition performance. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that really, I think that's fascinating. And uh, I mean, can you just just quickly summarize better than, than I have just from reading your quote? I mean, wh why... I don't know if you can do this justice in a, in a matter of minutes, but I mean, why should we be changing our perspective then, uh, um, insofar as nutritional status 
could be even more important than the training. Yeah, so uh, I mean that that quote. I'm glad you remembered that quote, Lauren. <laughs> I do listen sometimes, Joe. <laughs> again, like I touched on before, in the last ten or twenty years, the most interesting thing to emerge in our field is how nutrition affects gene expression and regulation of all of these signaling pathways. And it's become very clear in multiple labs that you can get people doing exactly the same exercise stimulus, but how they adapt to that stimulus depends on what nutrition they've had before, during or after. Carbohydrate, we've talked about today, but it's the same for protein. You don't feed protein after exercise, then you go into a negative protein balance. Therefore, you feed protein after exercise to facilitate protein synthesis. You feed carbohydrate after exercise, you might switch off all of these gene expression responses, regulating mitochondrial biogenesis. If you don't feed, then you might enhance. And the trick then is, when, I mean, people ask, ask us all the time, give me a diet, give me a diet. But really the question that we should be asking them straight back is, let me see an overview of your training plan. And then we can fit the nutrition in and around your training to maximize what you're trying to achieve. And the problem comes when the two aren't aligned. If the two are aligned and you're doing the basics well, then you'll get your gains. If the two are completely at odds with each other, then you're going to be one of these people that just doesn't adapt and doesn't achieve your goals. Absolutely. And what a fantastic way to end this podcast. Um, I mean, we're out of time. We could talk for hours. Uh, I mean, there were, I guess, well, one final little point before we... We come to a conclusion because that actually was a, a, a great thing to finish on there. But let's just just very briefly touch upon this sort of new thing of mouth rinsing. Uh, we've talked, of course, about um, the benefits of ingesting or not ingesting carbohydrates. But um, and of course, we've mentioned already that the impact isn't necessarily a fueling thing. Um, it can also be a signaling issue. So the emergence of, of mouth rinse. Uh, of carbohydrates. Just quickly tell us about that. Yeah, so I mean, I'm certainly not the expert in this line of research. This all stemmed from Askeuken Drup's lab back in 2004, 2005, and numerous groups have done research since then. But basically, when it comes to feeding carbohydrate during exercise, so not before, I'm talking about during exercise, in events that last less than 60 minutes or so, we know that you don't deplete glycogen. Typically, you don't deplete glycogen in a 60-minute event. Therefore, feeding carbohydrate during exercise shouldn't really improve performance because glycogen isn't limiting. But there's some studies that actually do suggest that when you feed carbohydrate in those 60-minute events, you do actually benefit performance. And then Asker's group really took it on to show that Actually, when you just rinse the carbohydrate solution in your mouth and then spit it back out again, you get the same beneficial effect as when you would ingest it. So this has now gave, gave rise to this whole new area of research suggesting that there's receptors in the oral cavity that directly sense carbohydrate that then almost signal to the brain to, I guess the brain then perceives the exercise to be less easier than what it really is and you can generate more power output so you can run quicker or you can run longer and the obvious implication then is for those events that last less than 60 minutes like a, a cycling time trial or maybe a 10k for that instance 
And there's now a large number of groups showing that it actually does improve performance. Maybe you don't have to ingest it, you can just rinse it and get rid of it again. Yeah, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? And it just shows you that we really are just starting to learn about this stuff. And uh, uh, like in the old days, we used to think the world was flat. You know, it's the same sort of thing. I think we're really, we're really, really starting to get somewhere, but we're certainly not there yet. And so too, one could say, uh, we certainly won't have answered uh, or brought to a close the debate on carbohydrates in this podcast. But I hope the listeners, you know, can leave this um, a little bit more aware as to what we do and don't know. And hopefully we'll stop thinking about carbohydrates from a it's simplistically good or bad uh, perspective. You know, it's all about context and hopefully we've given them enough fuel um, to look into this and read into it more. Um, so uh, thank you, James, for, for, for your uh, time and um, helping us delve a bit into your brain here. Um, I know that uh, some of the listeners may wish to go on and get into this in a huge way. And of course, they can come and attend those that are eligible, that is, um, the uh, the master's degree at Liverpool John Moores in um, sports nutrition that you and Graham run. I know that's a fantastic program. I know at least one of my students uh, is now on your program and I hear nothing but good, good things. Um, also, you have done lots of lectures, uh, guest lectures uh, for us on the ISSN diploma, which we have on video. And of course, you're uh, a regular uh, visitor to us in London at the live lectures. That, so um, this is by no means the last time we'll hear or see, see you. Um, I certainly recommend to everyone that's looking at this, if you really want to learn more about this stuff, uh, James co-authored a book with um, Professor Don McLaren, which is The Biochemistry for Sport and Exercise Metabolism. It's uh, published by Wiley Blackwell. It's a fantastic text on the subject and uh, delves a lot into this. And as we mentioned before, very much, um, you know, uh, an underlying feature of, of a message here is you really do need to understand the biochemistry of this stuff to truly understand the magic behind this. Uh, and for those of you that are aspiring sports nutritionists or, or practitioners in the sports sciences and getting into this stuff, you really won't know what you're doing if you don't know uh, about exercise metabolism and physiology and so on. So um, anyway, that brings us to the end of um, the uh, episode 17 of the We Do Science podcast. If you want to learn more about the podcast um, or um, the uh, ISSN diploma or more about uh, James Morton, etc., please come to um, guruperformance.com or issndiploma.com where you can learn more about that. And I look forward to bringing back another podcast to you all very soon. I, of course, am Laurel Bannock. And once again, thank you, James. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Okay, mate. Bye-bye.